0: we are in a season where we are really focusing on what it means to be a mature disciple of Jesus. And so we've come to the Gospel of Luke and we're asking the question, what is the kingdom of God like? That is the theme of the Gospel of Luke. The kingdom of God. And all the way through, and we've made it to chapter 5 and we're, we're pressing on today, we're asking the question, okay, well, what is this kingdom of God really like? Did anyone grow up hearing much about it? Taking an extended period of time to learn about the kingdom of God together. Now, it's been six weeks since we've been here in this study, okay? I was gone for a while. We took some time to do a series on lament. We had Easter celebrations. And now here we are back again in the gospel of Luke asking the question, what is the kingdom of God like? And so I've got a few slides that will be popping up here in a moment because we need some review, I decided, um, before we jump right back in. So I'm going to keep hitting this button on this clicker until something on the screen happens. (laughs) There it is. Praise the Lord. The kingdom of God, what is it? well, this just makes sense, doesn't it? The kingdom of God, of course, is that realm in which God is reigning. Think about the words, the kingdom of God, okay? The realm in which God is reigning, of course he is. God's kingdom, the realm in which he's reigning. Now, how has that been manifested on this earth? We have talked several times, and this is an important point to remember and review, that the kingdom of God was present on earth in the person of Jesus Christ. Think about it. He was the realm in which God was reigning. His body, his person, God, the God of Israel, the one true God, was reigning in his person. There's a present manifestation. Is present. There is a sense in which the kingdom of God is present now on the earth in the Christian. You, Christian, are the realm in which God is reigning. You are the one indwelt by the Holy Spirit where God is reigning. That's the unique thing about the Christian. It's a person in whom God is. Is reigning. So the kingdom of God was present, it is present, and finally, it will be present in all its fullness when Christ returns. The kingdom of God is not present in all of its fullness yet on earth. God's reign is not universally recognized by every creature at this point, but it will be. So you see, the kingdom of God is, was, and will be. when we think about jesus and how he relates to the kingdom of god just pointing out quickly a few things that we've seen we saw first that jesus came preaching the kingdom of god that's luke 4:43 that he was preaching the kingdom of god he was teaching people about it he was also picturing the kingdom And the easiest way to think about that is that in all the little towns that he went to, when he would come in and teach people, what else was he doing? Well, he was healing people. He was freeing people from the oppression of demons and their diseases. And that is a little picture of what the kingdom of God looks like. No more disease, no more Mute and lame and blind. And so he was picturing what the kingdom looks like everywhere that he went. And then we pointed out, it's almost an afterthought, but it's also a a crucial piece that he was also desiring the kingdom. There there was in, within himself, there was a true honoring of God where he wanted to see the kingdom of God fully manifest itself on earth. And that's very instructive for us. We call that the ministry paradigm. That we don't just want to preach the kingdom to people, and we don't want to just go and do nice things for people, picturing the kingdom, but we actually want some kind of real heart attachment to the kingdom. We want to be able to pray the prayer, Thy kingdom come. Lord, I really want your kingdom to come to this earth. So that's where we've been, okay? Really brief catch-up. On where we've been, where are we going? Well, we're going to see Jesus continue to preach, picture, and desire the kingdom. As we get back into Luke, we're going to see Jesus doing all these things. Preaching the kingdom, picturing the kingdom, desiring the kingdom. We're going to see him dealing with opposition. That's where we're headed today. He's going to have some opposition to deal with. We're going to see that happen several times Throughout the rest of the gospel, and then, of course, he's training his disciples. So big picture, that's where we're going. We're going to see all these things continuing to happen, and um, all of them will have a direct impact on our lives as we're just trying to learn, okay, what, is it, what does it mean and what does it look like to live as a, a citizen of this kingdom? And today, um, as I mentioned, the end of Luke 5, we have um, an opposition passage in front of us today. A particular charge is going to be brought against Jesus and his disciples. We're going to see how he responds to that charge. And we're going to learn what that means about life in the kingdom. All right? So it's verses 33 through 39. Very end of Luke 5. Luke 5 beginning in verse 33. Let's stand in honor of God and his word, shall we? Luke 5, 33. And they said to him... The they, the referent of they, is the Pharisees and their scribes. Okay, so jumping back up to verse 30, that's the referent of the word they. And they, that is the Pharisees and the scribes, the religious leaders of Israel, said to him, The disciples of John fast often and offer prayers. And so do the disciples of the Pharisees. But yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, Can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. He also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins and it will be spilled and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And no one after drinking old wine desires new. For he says, the old is good. All right, let's pray. Gracious Father, we ask you to show us your Son... Cause us to love what we see. And let that affection, let that love for him change our lives. We love you, Father, and ask in Jesus' beautiful name, amen. All right, please be seated. Even though the word is not in our text this morning, this passage is really about joy. You won't find the word joy in the passage that we just read, but that's the theme of this little section of Scripture. It's about what brings joy. It's about the appropriateness of joy, and it's about the protection of joy. Now, we've got some... Parables and some illustrations to work through, and some of them are going to require a little bit of thought. We're going to do that work, okay? So we're going to, we are going to give appropriate time to trying to figure out what Jesus is doing with these illustrations. But we don't want to lose sight here at the beginning. Beginning, we're going to carry this all the way through. Just remember, the theme here is joy, okay? And and we'll get there, and we'll we'll see it specifically. But I just want to put that before us at the beginning. I don't want to lose sight of the main thing presented to us here, that in the presence of God, there is joy. Now, all of the actors in this scene, this scene that we just read about in Luke 5, all of the the players would agree with that statement. Even the ones opposing Jesus, even the Pharisees would agree with the statement, yeah, there's joy in the presence of God. No one would contest that. The thing that they have not accounted for is the possibility that God could be among them in the flesh. That would be something new. That would be a new thing and it would call for a new response and a new set of practices. But the Pharisees and the scribes Don't imagine that something like that could be taking place. God among them in the flesh. And so we have this accusation in verse 33. Okay, so the passage breaks down really nicely into three parts. If you've got a a bulletin, the outline is right there for you. Really nice and simple. It breaks down into three parts. The accusation, verse 33. Jesus' answer. Verses 34 through 38. 38. And then finally, we have in verse 39 an acknowledgement. Uh, a very brief comment that Jesus makes on his own answer. He makes an acknowledgement in verse 39, and we'll get to that in, in due time. But first of all, this accusation, let's, let's look at it again. This is verse 33. Remember, this is all about joy, okay? Verse 33. They said to him, the disciples of John fast often and offer prayers. So do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. Okay? Now, notice they don't ask him a question. It's not a question, but a question is implied. Hey, everyone else is doing this. And you guys are doing this instead. Why? Why? Or if we put it in colloquial terms, we'd say, what's up with that? Notice, as we look a little bit more carefully at what they're saying in the, the accusation that they're bringing, notice that their accusation really has two points that they assume are problematic for Jesus. Jesus. Number one, they position Jesus and his group as being alone. They present Jesus and his disciples as being alone. When they are bringing evidence up in front of Jesus and talking with him about this problem, they point out that, hey, you know, we the Pharisees are practicing these prayers and fasting Okay, but it's not just us, also John and his disciples. You know, John, who's your guy. (laughs) You and John share the same message, John the Baptist. You're in this together. This is your group project, and he agrees with us. So, Jesus and his disciples, they're painting them as being totally alone in this. Even John and his disciples. Or on their side. So they're positioning them as alone. They're also positioning Jesus and his group as indulgent. Everyone else is drawing near to God through prayers and fasting. Look how pious that is. Look at our devotion. That's the religious way to approach God. Fasting and praying, that's deprivation. We're depriving ourselves for the purpose of communion with God. You know, and in its pure form, with pure motives, that's pretty wonderful. Like depriving oneself of, of food in order to draw closer to God and greater dependence on God. And then on the other hand, over here, here are these indulgent disciples of Jesus eating and drinking Jesus claims to be a teacher about God and teaching about the kingdom of God, claims to be instructing people in truth, in those things that are pleasing to God, and yet here is his group that's failing to keep the traditional practices of the day that were the marks of devotion. You know, the the Pharisees fasted every Monday and Thursday. (laughs) Can you imagine On special days, they also fasted, and John's disciples probably did likewise. And so here are the outsiders, here are the loners, here are the indulgent ones Jesus and his disciples. Okay? That's where they've painted them. Now, how is Jesus going to respond to that? What's his answer going to be? Here they are out on this limb. Let's look at his answer verses 34 to 38. First, notice what he does not do. He does not dismiss the practices of fasting and prayer as being wrong or unimportant. They're not wrong. They are important. We know that Jesus and his disciples pray the kind of prayer that they're talking about here is the prayer accompanied by fasting. It's a specific kind of prayer for a specific purpose. That's what his opponents are honing in on, that you're not keeping this specific time of fasting in prayer. Okay? Jesus doesn't say that's wrong. On the contrary, verse 35, he upholds fasting. He he says the days will come. My disciples will fast. So it's not that everyone else is doing something wrong. Fasting and prayer aren't wrong, of course. His answer is rather to this effect those practices are inappropriate to the occasion. And they are, in fact, impossible for my disciples. Those practices are inappropriate to the occasion, and in fact, they're impossible for me and my disciples. And before we talk about the illustrations and the parables, okay, we're going to get to the garment, the wineskins, the wedding feast, we're going to get there, but we have to get this underlying doctrine straight first. Here's the doctrine that underlies this, this whole set of illustrations, okay, the key point that we've already mentioned, In the the place in the scriptures that we see this most clearly, so succinctly, Psalm 1611. It's the psalm that was read at Molly and I's wedding by her brother. He read Psalm 16. This is the very last verse, Psalm 1611. In your presence is fullness of joy. Talking about God. In the presence of God there is fullness of joy. Think about don't miss it. It's not just in the presence of God there is joy. In the presence of God there is fullness of joy. That means a joy that cannot be improved upon. Fullness of joy. That is the foundational, unchangeable reality. That is scripture. That is the breathed out mind of God that can never change. In your presence is fullness of of joy now let me ask you a question what's fasting for is the purpose of fasting not for not not to draw near to the presence of God isn't that the goal of fasting to take some time where we Don't focus on our own needs and show God, you are my greatest need. You are my sustainer. I'm giving up food to pursue you. I want to draw close to you, God. Fasting is a wonderful God given way to draw near to God. But what if God is already with you? What if God is indeed sitting at your table? If God is already sitting at your table if you're already in the presence of God that means that fasting for you is about as necessary as a freezer at the North Pole. Fasting is about as necessary to you as a space heater in Phoenix. There's nothing wrong with Freezers and space heaters there's nothing wrong with those mechanisms it's just that at certain times and places they're not necessary because the end goal has already been achieved Jesus is there God is there Drawing near to God through fasting is therefore not necessary. Joy, on the other hand, is necessary. Joy symbolized by eating and drinking. Okay, that's the picture of joy that we see all the way through the scriptures. Joy manifested, joy illustrated, joy demonstrated by eating and drinking, feasting. Joy is the appropriate response, even the necessary response of the disciples to being With Jesus. And so Jesus uses some images that they can understand to convey these realities to them. That joy is the necessary and appropriate response for his disciples to the presence of God with them. Okay? He uses a couple things they can understand the image of the wedding feast. Hey, can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? What's the implied answer? No. How inappropriate would that be? not the purpose of the occasion. There has to be joy and fasting because of the bridegroom's presence. That's what the whole occasion is about. Jesus is the bridegroom in this illustration. The disciples are the wedding guests. Fasting is not appropriate. Joy is appropriate. The next images can be a little bit difficult to understand as we Jesus brings up this image of the the garment and the wineskins. Here's, here's the thing to know, big picture about these two illustrations that he uses. It, they serve one primary purpose. They serve the purpose of promoting one primary message, okay? The incompatibility of the old with the new. Two ways of saying the same thing. The old and the new are completely Incompatible. It doesn't work. In the case of the garment, it says, "Hey, if you try to fix something that's wrong with your old garment, and your proposed solution is to tear a piece of cloth off of something new, guess what? You've ruined the new thing that you had—the one that you just bought at Kohl's. Okay, that's ruined." You just tore a piece off of it and also it's not going to work anyway because the old is not going to match with the new on the old garment. See, old and new, incompatible. He uses another illustration. Think about wine and wineskins. Wineskins were made out of the skin of a goat. Okay, When they got old, they got hard and brittle. They, they lost their ability to expand and be flexible. Any pressure on something hard and brittle is going to destroy the thing as it loses its flexibility over time. And new wine has not fermented yet. And I guess in the fermentation process... It expand. the wine expands, okay? And that's why you can't put new wine in old wineskins, because during fermentation, as the wine expands, the wineskins don't move with it. They're hard and brittle, and they break. And guess what? Now your new wine is lost. It's spilled all over the floor. Wineskins, old wineskins, also broken. See, completely incompatible, old and new. Jesus is making these points about the old and the new to show that God being present in the flesh with his people is something new. And a new response is called for. Mixing old and new, whether it's with a garment, with its wine, or in the case of religious practice, it doesn't work. So for his disciples, he's telling them, for my disciples to take an old approach to this new paradigm will not work. A new paradigm necessitates a new practice. Therefore, eating and drinking, the sign of joy, is appropriate. So that's Jesus' answer. And if you want some tidy, summary statements to encapsulate everything that we just talked about, perhaps these will work for you in summary number 1 he defends the appropriateness of joy because of his presence and number 2 he defends the presence of new practices because there's a new paradigm god present among men now let's stop and hit one point of practical application cuz we're going to get to the acknowledgment in just a minute that's verse 39 let's let's do one Little item related to practical application, because this question comes up as we try to apply this to ourselves. Because we could very well ask the question, well, what's appropriate for us now? You know, we who live after the bridegroom's been taken away, right? Jesus said, when the bridegroom's taken away, then my disciples will fast. That seems to indicate, well, we should be fasting. And, And should that be our dominant practice? Because Jesus is not with us here bodily. And then on the other hand, we think, well, doesn't the fact that Jesus has promised his presence with us, his real spiritual presence, right? Matthew 28, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Jesus is with us. Jesus has uh, conquered death and sin. He's risen. He's reigning in heaven. He's coming again. Doesn't that mean that feasting should be the order of the day? What's appropriate Christian practice in light of both his absence on the one hand and his presence on the other hand. Is it fasting or is it feasting? And I, I think you probably intuitively, many of you know that, well, it's both. The Christian life really is a life of both feasting and fasting. You know, when we, when we feast, and I'm just saying when we're, when we're celebratory with each other and you know, sharing food and drink and feasting, so to speak, either with others or in our heart, we're, we're giving a very important message to the world, the message that the kingdom of God has begun. It's here. It's been inaugurated. Christ is risen. The Holy Spirit has come. I have hope in a future. I'm, I'm feasting. God is with us. Emmanuel. Joy has dawned in the incarnation, and in the resurrection. And when we feast, we picture those Realities as citizens of the, the kingdom of God. And then on the other hand, when we fast, when we deprive ourselves for a time, we picture and communicate something else that's really important. The fact that the kingdom of God is not yet here in its fullness. It, there's, a, there's a longing in my heart. That the world is not yet as it should be. That there is much to be recreated and redeemed. That I don't experience the immediate presence of Jesus yet. That's Revelation 22. Among the last words of the whole Bible. The spirit and the bride say come. Come Lord Jesus. Come in body. He's not here yet. And we say come. So, we live with both this great joy and this great longing. And I just have to say, you know, I'm 44, almost 45 years into this this journey. And when I look at my life, what I can see and what I can tell you honestly is that my joy is increasing. My joy in Christ is increasing. And so is my longing to be with him. To be with him in an immediate way. Does that resonate with you? Can anyone else look at their life and see the same thing? That It's almost counterintuitive. How could both of these things be true? That my joy in Christ is increasing and so is my longing to be with him? That's the Christian life. Both feasting and fasting have their place in this joyful and longing Christian life. So we embrace both, we practice both, we need both. All right, this acknowledgement, and then we're done, okay? The accusation, the answer, the acknowledgement. Acknowledgement, verse 39, I think is very difficult to understand. What is Jesus doing here? Here's what we have to know about the acknowledgement that he makes in verse 39, okay? He's still talking about wine. He's still using wine as an illustration. But he's changed the subject. He's no longer trying to illustrate the incompatibility of the old with the new. And the, the reason this is hard is because he's still using wine as an example. If he had changed the, the image, it would be a little bit easier, Okay? He's no longer illustrating how the old and new are incompatible. He's using a proverb about wine to make the point that new practices are not acceptable to people who are schooled in old practices. He knows that the new practices that he's advocating for and saying are necessary, he knows that they will not be found desirable by those who like the old. Just as anyone who has had the old wine does not desire the new wine because they think the old is better, okay? That's what he's saying. Saying, think about wine, how people love the old and don't want the new. He's saying the same way with what I've been saying. So Basically, he says, take everything I've just been explaining to you, all these illustrations that I've been using, take all of that. He says, I know you will not accept any of what I just said because those who are schooled in the old want the old. They don't want the new. It's proverbial. And no one after drinking old wine Desires new. For he says the old is good. He knows that they won't want it. And he's right. Of course he's right. History proves him right. They don't change their practices. Instead they remove God from their presence. And so the opposition to him will continue. We'll see another Occasion for opposition next Sunday when we get into Luke 6. And now it's going to become really big. Because now it's not the eating and drinking that are in question. Now the Sabbath commandments are being violated. And, you know, that's their, that's their pet issue. So it's going, to, it's going to get real and difficult. But today, Christian, okay, putting a bow on today. Just remember what we've learned about the kingdom of God. Remember that joy is your future when the kingdom of God comes in fullness, we will live in joy, fullness of joy. I want you to know that your future is smiles, an endless succession of days of smiles in the presence of God. I think it's beautiful that so often children are the chosen image that Jesus uses to talk about the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Or no one can enter the kingdom unless they become as a little child. Think about children at play. Think about the, the carefree days of playing in childhood. The memories that you have. For some of us, that is in the past. But for all of us, that is our future. And we have to remind ourselves of that because the things we go through can be so hard and the cloud cover can be so thick and we may not see the sun for days and days and days. And we must remember that our future with Jesus Christ is a future of joy that cannot be improved upon. That is your future, Christian. That's what the kingdom of God is like. Amen. Father, we thank you for um, the word given to us and even more so uh, for the glorious son that it reveals to us. How we thank you in his holy name.